Well, good morning, everyone. We are in our series in the book of Nahum. If you have your Bibles, you can look for that. Um, it's in the back in the Old Testament and uh, about the middle, far, you'll find it. It's small. It's only three chapters. The title of our series is War and Peace. Nahum is talking it currently. They're, they're in a moment of peace, but he is explaining to them that there is a war coming. He's explaining that there's going to be problems because of the way they've lived their lives and because of the world they live in. It's a both and. That we, uh, and we need someone to, to come and to save us. And so Nahum is reminding the people of God's plan and purpose. He gives them two verses to remind them that are kind of critical verses in the, in the book. He says, the Lord is a jealous and avenging Um, avenging God and then at the end of chapter one he says look to the mountains the feet of one bringing good news and proclaiming peace so again Nahum presents this idea of there's this war there's one coming the Lord is going to avenge he is going to bring justice which if we're really honest all of us long for that all of us want justice for someone else and mercy for ourselves We kind of expect God to be merciful to us and justice to those really bad people. And God is just for everyone. And he is merciful to everyone. And you have to kind of figure out how can you do that? How can you be truly just if all you do is be merciful and never hold people accountable? That's not justice. That's that's license. That's actually evil. It's how most of the atrocities in the world happen because someone's not held accountable. And they just keep letting it go until it gets worse and worse and worse and until finally there's a war. Or the flip side is that we're just, 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 just on people. We never have any mercy. We don't know how to have mercy. And as a result, people rise up and bring justice to someone who has no idea how to be merciful. Because see, only God can have all the attributes we long for. We're human. We can't have all those attributes. And only he can present to us how those attributes flesh out and work in our world. And we don't like that either. Last week, we looked at the idea that Nahum is writing. It's an oracle he's writing. An oracle is a wise, authoritative statement. That's what an oracle is. He's writing to a city in Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, one of the greatest empires to ever exist. And he's writing to this foreign city of Nineveh. And if you remember, Nineveh was a place that God sent the prophet Jonah to. You know Jonah, the guy that got thrown off a boat, swallowed by a fish, spit out, that guy? So Jonah went to Nineveh, and Nineveh repented and said, we now believe in Yahweh, we give up our idols, we cry out to him. And if you remember, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted justice on the Ninevites. And he knew God was a God of mercy, so he didn't want to go preach to the Ninevites because he didn't want them to be forgiven. He wanted them to be annihilated. Now Nahum is coming back around because Nineveh has become even more wicked than when Jonah went because now they know God and they reject him before they didn't know him. And now Nahum is coming and he is saying, look, you have forgotten who God is. And last week we looked at that. We looked at the fact that Nahum tells them in chapter 1, God is a jealous God. We just sang that. He is an avenging God. We sang that too. He is fierce in wrath. We sang that just a minute ago. He's furious with his enemies. He is slow to anger, great in power. He's good. 
And he is a stronghold in a day of distress, in a day of war, in a day of mess. See, God is all of it, not just the parts we like, not just the parts we pick. And so Nahum is reminding the Ninevites, he's also reminding God's people when he writes this, that just because you call yourself God's person or God's people doesn't mean it's going to work out for you the way you want it. And just because you think you're stronger than God and better than God and God looks weak right now because you're kind of over his people, don't think that God still isn't in control. And so Nahum is writing to that group of people and he's preaching and telling them, look, you have to understand who Yahweh is, who the great I am is. If you get that wrong, everything else will be messed up. That's what he tells them. And in chapter 2, he reminds them that there's one who is coming. There's one who's going to come. That from the foundation of the earth, God said when he, Adam and Eve sinned and he put them out of paradise, he said there's going to come a day when I am going to come back and be with you again. I am going to come and I'm going to be the one that delivers you. Throughout the entire Old Testament, from Ab- from. Adam to Abraham to Noah, all the way through, there's this theme that God is going to take one to save the rest. Abraham, and he had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and out of those 12 sons, one son, Judah in particular, right? Noah, he goes through and he says, look, I, I, I'm looking for the one that I can, and it's, it's revealing that he's going to bring one someday, That's where the concept of Messiah comes from. The idea of the Old Testament, there's going to be one who comes who isn't like us, who will save us. But we can't be the one. We can't make ourselves the one. We can't save ourselves. All we're doing is looking for who the one might be. Because one is coming. And throughout the whole Old Testament, God's people were constantly looking for the one. And they made a lot of terrible decisions looking for the one. They actually made people the one who shouldn't be the one. God said, I don't ever want you to have a king. I want to be your king. And the people said, well, everybody else has got a king. We want one. (laughs) We want a king. And God says, no, you don't want a king. If you get a king, he's going to make you do stuff you don't want to do. He's going to make your kids do things they don't want to do. He's going to make you fight in wars. He's going to do things. You don't want an earthly king. Yeah, we do. God said, okay, fine. I'll let you have one. Here you go. And then I'm going to change his heart and I'm going to use him. And then you're going to be stuck with a king forever. And there's going to be wicked kings and good kings. At each king, you're going to think, this is the one. This is the king that's going to fix all the problems. And he's not going to fix the problems. And then you're going to think, oh, this king really did fix a lot of our problems. And then his son's going to come along. And he's even more wicked than the three kings before him. And it leaves us like we are right now in the United States of America in our world today, asking a question, is there one who will come to save us? We'll elect another guy, and another guy, and another guy, and another guy. He's the one. Oh, he's not. Oh, he, nope. Some Supreme Court justices, oh, these guys will save us. No, no, they won't. And all the time, God in heaven, Nahum says, is crying out and saying, I'm the one. Me, and I sent my son, Jesus, to you to be the one. And so we pick up the story, remember kind of the history of where we're at. In 930, Israel's kingdom splits. Why? Because David was the king. 
Remember, Israel picked Saul as their king, the one. Saul's the one. Saul wasn't the one. So David was raised up by God to be set to say, this is, oops, this is my king. This one's going to be my king, David. So David was the one kind of, because God said, well, David, you're really not the one. You're just going to be the human being I bring the one through. Through your like bloodline, I'm going to bring the one, but you ain't the one. And David knew he wasn't the one. But David told his sons, hey, you guys need to be ready for the one. And David wasn't a very good father. He didn't discipline very well. So his sons killed each other and went to war and all kinds of stuff. And then one son came, Solomon. He was the son no one saw coming because he was the son of the affair, the adultery, who came to the throne. And some people were really mad about that. How did that guy become the one? He doesn't have the right to be the one. And so they split the kingdom. A general said, we don't want Solomon to be the one. And Solomon didn't be, he wasn't, didn't do a very good job of being the one. Because Solomon had a thousand ones. If you remember, he had a thousand wives and concubines. Set 300, 700 wives, 300 concubines. He couldn't find the one. So he kept looking for the one. You see a theme here? So, so the, the kingdom split after Solomon into north and south. God warns the northern kingdom, please don't come up with a different way to worship. Still worship in Jerusalem. Still do it the way I told you to. Northern kingdom says no and does their own thing. As a result of that, the Assyrian Empire at this point unites. At this time, Israel has no enemies. They're one of the strongest empires in the world under Solomon. They have complete peace. And then the Assyrian Empire, at the same time the country split, God allows the Assyrian Empire to rise up. And he's going to use that government, you'll see. Like he uses all governments to bring his justice. Jonah goes, he preaches to the Ninevites because God's like, well, if I'm going to raise up these Assyrians, they need to know about me. So he sends Jonah to talk to the Assyrians. To, they repent. The Assyrians conquer northern Israel in 722 because they stopped kind of dealing with who God really was. And, and they actually treated northern, the northern kingdom very badly. They, it, was, it was terrible. And then the southern kingdom kind of became under assault the whole time. This guy named Sennacherib comes to the throne in 705 through 681. In 701, he decides to attack the southern kingdom, which God said not to do. Sennacherib actually took away all the signs of Yahweh in the Assyrian Empire. Ripped them down, burned them, got rid of them. Wanted nothing to do with Yahweh. And then he went to attack Judah. Now, if you read the historical accounts of the Assyrians, not just the Bible, the Assyrians' historical accounts, you know that when Sennacherib went in to attack, he woke up one morning and half his army was dead. And so he left Jerusalem. He stopped giving siege to the city and fled back to his home country. And when he fled back, a little time later, both of his sons rose up to try to take the throne and killed their father. And the Assyrian Empire was now a little unstable. At this time, there's also a guy named Manasseh, a very wicked king. He came to the throne at age 12. You'd be wicked too if you came to the age. Can you imagine your 12-year-old self ruling a nation? Oh, my goodness. Like, everything would be like a G.I. Joe game for me. Like, you know, set up this side against this side. Let's just kill each other. That's fun. Oh, you're dead. Oh, I'll bring you back to life tomorrow. I mean, that would have been terrible. But again, the Bible says that if youth and women are leading you, that's typically the sign of a culture that's in decline. It's a culture where the men have stopped being men. And it's a culture where most of the time women and children have had to rise up because the men are so selfish and they're looking to get their own that they haven't learned how to give their lives to protect their kingdoms and their loved ones. 
As a result of this, Sennacherib puts you seize, Hezekiah's king, Hezekiah cries out, he repents, the nation goes into a revival, it's a beautiful time, but then Manasseh rises to the throne, he's wicked. And under Manasseh, he ends up becoming a vassal of Assyria. They're like paying bribes so that Assyria doesn't kill him. After that, Nahum comes along and says, hey, this isn't a good idea, you might want to repent. Manasseh brought in all the Assyrian gods, it was wicked. However, at the end of his life, Manasseh repents and cries out to God. Says, God, please save us. But his son comes to the throne, Amnon. Amnon comes to the throne. I should have flipped that above Nahum. Or I'm sorry, um, or I should have mentioned that before. When, when, when Amnon comes to the throne, he's at least a little older. He's 22, but he hates his dad. And he really hates the fact that as a young person, he lost all the good things he had when he had to repent when his dad made the nation repent. And Amnon decides, I'm going back to the way things were because I'm not living this God life anymore. And Amnon turns the country to such wickedness, makes Manasseh's time look like no big deal. Amnon reigns for two years. His two sons kill him. Like, we're done with you. You don't know how to do this justice, mercy thing. You're out of here. You're not the one we need. We're the ones that are going to step up. As a result of that, the empire's a mess, but then Josiah, one of the other sons, comes to power at age eight. Now we got an eight-year-old leading the nation. You think we've had two bad presidents in a row? I know you know one of them was bad. Right? It's where we are now. Sides on everything. Eight years old, he's leading the nation. But Josiah causes a revival. You want to know why? He reads the Bible. He finds the Bible, it's read to him, and he's like, that's a great story, let's do that. And so at a very young age, he's like, let's read this to everybody. So he reads the Bible to everyone, and they all repent, and the nation changes. But Judah's still a vassal of Egypt under Josiah. Josiah goes to finally get rid of Egypt, and he's actually killed by Egypt. As a result of that, there's just more mess. Finally, Nineveh falls because they treated God's people so badly. God brings the Medes and Babylonians in. Nineveh falls to the Medes and Babylonians, and now Judah becomes a vassal of the Babylonian empire, paying them off, peace, trying to keep what they have. Not looking to the one, but we've got to keep what we have. And finally, in 587, Judah falls to Babylon because they refuse to trust God and believe him over their circumstances. Let me ask you this morning. What's the one or who's the one you're waiting for to come? What's the one that's going to save you? The wife, the husband, the kid, the army, the job, None of those things are bad or evil in and of themselves. God sends wonderful gifts and people and things into our lives. They're not the one. And if you make them the one, that's an idol. And just like we look at all this list, God destroys anything that's an idol to him. And you don't want the things in your life destroyed because of your idolatry. So look for the one who is coming. Nahum 3 
It says, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear off your shackles. Look to the mountains, the feet of one bringing good news, proclaiming peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. In other words, get back to worship. Fulfill your vows. And if you worship God, you'll want to obey God. For the wicked will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. God is telling his people, this is a bad time. It's going to get worse. But there's going to come a day. It's already, but not yet. There's going to come a day when things will be wiped out and started over. Second Peter 3, 9 says this, the Lord does not delay in his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, his coming, the one that will come like a thief, it will come like a thief. And on that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. Look at this. As you wait and earnestly desire the coming day of the Lord, the coming one. He says there's a way you should be waiting. There's a way you should be waiting for the one that's coming. There's a proper response, and the response is to look at what God has said and to say, how do I conduct myself with godliness? And you know, you can't get it perfect. That's why God said there's forgiveness, because that's how we conduct ourselves with godliness is by saying we're not God and we need someone that can forgive us. And Peter writes this in the New Testament. Nahum 2.1 says, one who scatters is coming up against you. Now he's speaking to Nineveh. He's saying, you don't understand. You're the strongest empire right now with the greatest fortifications. You have some of the greatest wealth ever. But I'm telling you, one is coming who is going to come up against you and he is going to scatter everything. And then sarcastically, Nahum says this. Listen in. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourselves and summon all your strength. Because it ain't going to work. And these are the same words we say all the time before we'll ever repent to God. We just need a stronger military. We just need better roads to get goods where they need to go. Supply chain. We just need to have a better emergency fund in retirement so we're braced for that time of struggle. We just got to summon up all of our collective good and strength, and that'll, that'll fix it. All the time, God in heaven is shaking his head, brokenhearted, looking and saying, do you not see how scattered things are and how it's going to get even worse? Would you just come to me? I'm the one. He goes on and says this, for the Lord will restore Underline that. The Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel. Notice God doesn't say the Lord will restore what you want. He doesn't say the Lord will restore you personally. He says he's going to restore his people. See, we always want to make things very personal, like it's just me and Jesus. It's just me and God. And God is a personal God. That's true. But God calls us into that personal relationship so we can do what he did, and that is go out to people. 
gives us the personal so that we can give ourselves like he did to the people. And that's what he's saying. He's, There's going to come a day when God restores the majesty of Jacob, the people of God. Yes, the majesty of the people of Israel, under which we've been adopted, the New Testament says, because of what Jesus did. See, in the Old Testament, everyone was looking for the one. The New Testament proved the fact that Jesus is the one. And anyone who was a believer in the Old Testament, anyone who was a believer in Christ when he came, and all of us who have believed since then, all together collectively are looking for the one who will return. It's the same story. It hasn't changed. The only reason Jesus didn't come and bring death and murder and like make everything just is because he said, I'm going to give time for all the Gentiles in the world, if you ain't Jewish, that's you, to repent. Just like he's giving the Ninevites time right now who aren't Jewish and who aren't Israelites to repent. That's God's heart, but he is a just God. But he says, I'm going to restore. Here's the thing. He doesn't say, I'm going to restore you, Matt Shockney. He says, I'm going to restore my plan. And it may not be in your lifetime, Matt Shockney. It may not be what you want, but I can promise you, I will restore. It's worth giving your life to the restorative reconciliation process, he says. And see, when Jesus came as the Son of God, the one who was the promise, the, the Messiah, the fully man, fully God, he was fully man through his mother, he was fully God because he was not conceived by man, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. So God took the created being of man and he put his spirit in Mary and that became Jesus himself. You say, well, that's hard to believe. It's really not that hard to believe. If God created things, he can tinker with it. It's really not that tough. People who create stuff can tinker with stuff. It's just we don't want to give God that kind of authority. Neither did they in Jesus' day. See, we forget that when Jesus came, he was rejected by his own people. Nahum is rejected. Nineveh rejects Nahum's message. Even the southern kingdom rejects Nahum's message for the most part. The story of the Bible is the story of people rejecting God. And then we see how God reacts to those people, which is typically with long-suffering, patience, mercy, and then finally discipline and justice when he has to. And so here you have Jesus in John. And he says, for this is the will of my Father. For him to say that God is his Father would have caused them to kind of, what? So, so you mean like we're all sons? No, no, no. I'm the son of God. He goes on, he says, this is the will of my father that everyone who sees the son and believes in him, that's Jesus, may have eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. In other words, when I come again. Those are Jesus' words. This is what he said. Then he goes on and he says, Therefore the Jews started complaining about Jesus because he said to them, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They didn't complain about the first statement. You want to know why? 
Because the religious leaders that were leading actually thought that that first statement was for them. That they would become kings, that they would become sons, that they would sit on thrones and rule over all of Israel, that they would get the power, that they would take control. So the first part of this, that someday the Pharisees who were listening, who believed in the resurrection, were like, yeah, we're all going to raise up and stick it to those Gentiles. We're going to be the ones that God loves, and he's going to take everybody else out. But the one thing they got really upset about is when he said, I'm the bread that came from heaven, because they recognized, wait a second, if, if you say it was your bread, your bread, and the bread that came from heaven's manna that we got in the wilderness under Moses, then we were eating your flesh? Look at what he says. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Like he's near his hometown, near, he's in Capernaum, the synagogue in Capernaum at this time. They're like, we know this boy. He can't be the one. We've watched him grow up. I mean, sure, he's like perfect, but you know, he's just better than most kids. This can't be the one. I mean, the one's supposed to come like big, and exciting, and famous, and do big stuff, and he should have like at least a million followers on Twitter. Like he's got, that's the one. That's the guy. Not Jesus. J Joseph's supposed boy, but we all know the truth, that Mary was pregnant before she got married. How can he know? Look at this. How can he now say, I've come down from heaven. God is so patient. He will bring Jesus from heaven to earth, put him in a baby, raise him up, allow him to live a perfect life for 30 years. Remember, I say this all the time. I told somebody this yesterday at our graduation party. What did Jesus do from age 12 to 30? We have two verses. He obeyed his mom and dad. He went home and he grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. That was his whole life that we know about from, eight, from age 12 to 30. The most important years of a young man's life, we don't have a clue what he's doing, except staying home with his mom, taking care of his family, working a job, going to synagogue, fulfilling the Old Testament law perfectly. And all of us would say, what a miserable existence. <laughs> and Jesus found great joy in it. So when he comes on the scene, the Pharisees could, can't stand that he's not one of them. He's not the religious elite. He didn't go through the right education and channels. He, he can't be the one. The one's got to come like in a big way. We can't know the one. He goes on and says this. I assure you, anyone who believes and has eternal life, read that again, anyone who believes has eternal life. If you believe in the one that will come, if you're looking for a Messiah, if you believe you can't save yourself and you doing all the laws of the Old Testament doesn't get you in good with God, it actually distances you from God because you're telling God, look at me and how awesome I am. Versus saying, God, I'm nothing, I'm desperate for you. And then when he gives you the law, you're like, oh, you want me to do that? Well, just out of gratitude, I'll obey you because you've already saved me. You already say that you're going to resurrect me. You already say that you're going to come someday for me. So I'm not trying to prove anything. I just want to be responsibly grateful for what you've already done. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. That statement's kind of blunt, but it's like, yeah, like you try to do all this stuff in your life and then you still die at the end. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone 
may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that moment, the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because that would have been against Jewish law. So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, woo, that's even bigger because you weren't even supposed to touch human blood or you were unclean. You do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day when I come. Because of my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your fathers ate. Underline that. He says, you're thinking earthly stuff. You're thinking earthly king. You're thinking earthly deliverance. You're thinking earthly money. You're thinking earthly stuff. He's like, you're thinking wrong. I'm not talking about an earthly bread because your stomach's rumbling and you're hungry and you're thinking, Matt, stop, it's time for lunch. He goes, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, it's not like the man of your fathers ate because they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Therefore, when many of his disciples, look at this, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked some of his disciples, does this offend you? See, God isn't afraid to offend us because he loves us. People who truly love us aren't afraid to tell us the truth because they truly love us. But someone who wants to use us doesn't want to tell us the truth because they're afraid that we'll leave and they can't use us. He goes on and he says, Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you saw me go up into heaven, would you believe? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are of the Spirit and life. And they are life. He says, you're thinking physical. I'm talking about a spiritual eating of the word of God. I'm talking about a spiritual eating of who God is, who Yahweh is. I'm talking about a spiritual feeding that when things are going bad, you remember to spiritually feed on the future and on heaven and what's coming, not just to fill your belly and please your flesh where you're at in this moment. These are Jesus' words. Then he says, but there are some among you who don't believe. Again, big statement. Jesus is saying, there are some among you, the reason you don't believe that there's one coming is because you think you can save yourselves and you can save everybody else. You believe that it's about this earth. You believe that you can fix all the problems. Remember what Nahum started out with. Man the walls. Grab the chariots. You know, bring all your strength together. Ain't gonna work. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe the one who would and the one who would betray him. From that moment, look at this, verse 66. From that moment on, many of Jesus' disciples turned back 
and no longer accompanied him. Jesus was constantly getting a crowd. Read the Bible sometime, the New Testament. Read the Gospels. He would get a crowd and then he would give a hard teaching and a bunch of people would leave. All the time. Because he loved them. He was tired of them being deceived. He was tired of them being lied to. And he said, I've got to tell these people the truth. Therefore, Jesus said to the 12 who were still there, the 12 are still like, well, you don't want to go away too, do you? Nobody listened to Nahum. Nobody listened to the prophets of old, hardly ever. Do you, do you want to go like them? Do you want to go into oblivion and destruction like Nineveh's getting ready to and the southern kingdom of Judah's getting ready to? Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? There's no one else that's coming. There's no one else coming to save us. We've put all our cards in on you. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah. That's the only answer I got. I don't understand your teachings sometimes. It's weird. I don't understand this whole flesh and blood stuff. It's weird. I got nowhere else to go. I've tried it all. I've done it all. I, if you're not the one, then okay, I'm done. That's deep faith. Nahum goes on to say, For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob, yes, the majesty of Israel, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. See, Nahum says it's going to be restored, but he says don't expect that you're not going to be ravaged and when you get to the end, there may be no vine branches left. We live in a broken world. There are no promises on this side of eternity. All the promises are fully fulfilled and forever on the other side of eternity. Some promises God will allow us to have a glimpse of for a time, right? People get healed. It's beautiful. And people still die, which means they didn't get healed. And they will be healed forever in eternity in heaven and never get sick again and never die again. That's the message of our book. And Nahum says they're going to ravage and ruin the vine branch. We take communion as the bread and body of Christ, right? You eat, you drink, and it's a reminder. It's not his actual blood and body. It's a reminder. That's what Jesus said. This is a spiritual reminder of what I did by paying the penalty you owed for your sin on the cross. I paid that for you so your flesh doesn't have to die for sin. It's still going to die, but not for sin. And you can live in the spirit. You see, here's the key. Even though they've been ravaged and the vine branch has been broken, God says that once you've come to know Jesus, he has a desire to produce fruit through your life. Look at Galatians. It says, Christ has liberated us to be free. Free to do what? Be fruitful. What kind of fruit? Glad you asked. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't put back on the mess of the previous kings, the mess of the, like don't put back on all that. Don't do it. It's so easy to go back and reestablish the idolatry in your life. Don't go back. 
He says, I say then, walk by the Spirit. Jesus was just talking about a spiritual, eternal life, feeding on him. And you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So there's a war going on. There's a war for peace in your heart that's going on right now that will go on when you leave here, that will go on tomorrow, that's at war with you between the flesh that wants what it wants and the spirit that's trying to get you to say, let me let the flesh tell the flesh what to do. And we can either go to God and say, God, we'll let your spirit tell our flesh what to do or we'll just feed our flesh and devour everyone else when God's saying, I'm here to be devoured in the spirit. So what does that look like? Well, he lists a bunch of things that aren't spiritual. And then at the end of Galatians, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, and by the way, against these things, there is no law, which means you can do as much of them as you want, (laughs) as long as you want. And there's no law against being patient. You can be as patient as you want. You can be as self-controlled. Good luck trying to figure out when someone's gentle enough. Have they been gentle enough? I don't know. Remember, and it's not our version of gentleness. It's not we get to measure someone and say, that's gentle, that's not. The Bible does talk about that. But, you know, God's gentle, but he's also avenging, wrathful, jealous, everything we just read about. So his gentleness is different than our gentleness. You've heard me say it before. You can, you can mercilessly kill someone or you can mercifully kill, kill someone. We know that people are going to die. We know that wars happen. And a good country and a good army will not try to kill people mercilessly. They will try to find ways to fight the battle that's in front of them with mercy and compassion. But they still know the battle's got to be fought. And so he says, one is coming... You ready for this? When Jesus died, he ascended into heaven and he said, one's coming. And then he sent the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to fill our hearts because he said, I'm going to send one that's going to produce fruit so the world can see the fruit of God and want to become believers. Goes on and says this in John, I am the true vine, Jesus says. My father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. That should be encouraging. If you've come to know Jesus and you've seen him change your heart just a little bit, guess what? He's going to prune your life to keep helping you change. You don't have to look and go, oh, he's going to cut me off because I'm such a horrible, terrible person. I've never done anything good. No, if you know Jesus, he says he's going to be the one that produces the fruit in your life. You can take full confidence in that. Don't doubt it. He's going to do it. Our job is just to let him kind of cut away the stuff that needs to be cut away. But you're like, but I like that branch. I know it doesn't produce any fruit, but it's really comfortable. And it hurts when they get cut off. I don't know what's going on. Is it going to grow back? I don't know. He goes on and he says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. I've already set you free. This isn't about you trying to stay connected to the vine. I've already filled you with my spirit if you're connected to me and you believe in me. Then he says, remain in me and I in you just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me, I in him, produces much fruit because you can do a few things without me. You can do nothing that matters 
without me, Jesus says. And that's what Nahum's trying to get the Ninevites. He's trying to get God's people to see that you're trusting in yourselves. You're trusting in your armies. He goes on to say, if anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them into the fire and they are burned. The city of Nineveh gets burned to the ground by the Medes and the Babylonians to never be inhabited again. To this day, it's buried just outside the city of Mosul in Iraq. He goes on and he says, if you remain in me and my words in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. He doesn't say it'll be done for you in your timing. He says it will be done for you in my timing. That when you ask and you're asking in the power of the Holy Spirit and you're asking what I want you to ask, then you can believe it's going to be done. Our problem is we ask a bunch of stuff that God doesn't ask us to ask for. We actually sometimes will pray against the will of God on purpose because we know what the will of God is, so we'll say the opposite, trying to get him to do the opposite of his own will because we don't like it. He goes on, he says, my father is glorified by this that you produce fruit and by producing fruit you prove to be my disciples. Jesus goes on in Matthew and he says, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. The northern and southern kingdom claimed Yahweh, but many of them didn't know him. They hadn't surrendered their life to him. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do miracles in your name? Look at all our strength like Nineveh. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. If you've accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, if you've believed on him like he said was necessary, you're not a lawbreaker anymore. You're a law obeyer because Jesus gave that law that we are to surrender our lives and our hearts to him. Good job. You stopped being a lawbreaker. You decided to submit to God and give him the credit that's due his name and call him the Messiah you need and the one that's coming. That means you stopped deciding to break the law and said, God, I want you. That should give you a lot of hope, even if you sometimes mess up and break the law, right? Here's the deal. You're going to mess up and break the law. That's why God's given us police and he's given us family. He's given us parents so we can discipline our children, not punish them, discipline them so that they might live for God. He goes on in Luke, he says, Then he said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warns you, this is John the Baptist speaking, to flee from the coming wrath, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And do not start saying to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. Now even now, even now the axe is ready to cut at the root of the trees. There's no fruit. Therefore every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. And he says, repent. Cry out to God and say, you need to come and save us. That's all you have to do. It's not hard. Romans 6 says this, but now since you've been liberated from sin, since you've cried out to God and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in you becoming more like God, sanctification. And in the end, you'll have eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me ask you, who's going to be the one that pays the price for your sin? You can't pay the price. You can't do enough good things to work off the bad. That's not justice. 
If God allowed that, he would no longer be a just God. But you want to know what God does allow? Substitution. If someone else will be willing to die in your place, then justice is served. But the sentence is made. Someone has to serve the time. Someone has to serve the penalty. And from the beginning of creation, God said, I'll be the one that serves the time and I'll be the one that pays the penalty for the creation I made. Nahum goes back on and says this. He's warning Nineveh and he says, the shields of his warriors are dyed red. This is the one that's coming to destroy them. These are the Medes. The Medes and the Babylonians actually had leather shields and they would dye them red. So it looked like blood. It looked like an army marching with red shields on your walls would panic you. He's also talking about the fact that they're dyed red with blood, which is another reason why they made red shields, because if you make red, then the blood gets on it, it just stays on there. It doesn't make the shields look bad. You don't have to clean them. And it makes it way more scary for the enemy. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. They wore red. The fittings of the chariots flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash made through the streets. They rush around the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He orders... He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They race to its walls. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened. And the palace erodes away. They actually, the Medes and the Babylonians, remember this hasn't happened yet. Nahum's saying what's going to happen. The Medes and the Babylonians actually take out the dam that was made by one of the Assyrian kings. There's a dam that he made to control the flow of water that went into Nineveh. And there was a great storm that came and filled the dam up so high they were afraid the dam was going to break. And the Medes and Babylonians said, well, if we break the dam, it'll rush into the city. The walls will collapse from the weight and the flood, and then we'll be able to march right in. And that's exactly what happened. And Nahum said many decades earlier, that's exactly what would happen. It goes in and it says, beauty is stripped. She's carried away. Her ladies-in-waiting moan like the sound of doves. And beat their breasts. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they are fleeting. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end to the treasure, an abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, lions shake, her loins shake, and every face grows pale. This is total annihilation. Nahum is saying, if you don't repent, the only option God has is to take his hands off and allow the world's way with you. And if that happens, it's bad. Don't do it, he says. Verse 11, where is the lion's lair, the feeding ground of the young lions, where the lion and the lioness is proud? He's talking about how Assyria had it so easy. Every battle they fought, they just won. They just took over nations. They made everybody a vassal. They were incredibly wealthy. They took whatever they want. They were like lions on the prey, the top of the food chain, taking whoever they wanted. And he said, that's done. Will nothing frighten them away? The lion mauled whatever its cubs needed and strangled its prey from the lionesses. It's filled up its dens with the kill and its lairs with mauled prey. He's saying, you were the lion, but now God's going to send another lion. Our Bible says it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, but at this time it was the lion of the Medes and Babylonians, the Assyrians and their pride, who wouldn't treat God's people well. They wouldn't submit. As we come down to the end, let me encourage you in this. 
This story that Nahum's giving is a story that gets told over and over and over again in Scripture. It's a story both of hope for those that have injustice put on them, and it's a hope of mercy for those who deserve justice. And is there any way I can be saved for the injustice I've committed? There's no other God and no other religion that does this. There isn't. I've studied them. I was an Asian studies minor in college. Almost got a religious studies minor. Okay? Like, no other religion presents a God like this. And no other religion presents a God that will give himself. It's a God that's always saying, you do this and I will save you. This is a God that says, I will save you because of who I am. Now, what's your response to that? Revelation at the end of the Bible You can see Jesus has already come. And when he came, they rejected him because he didn't come to be the mighty king that would overthrow the Assyrians, the Babylonians. He would come and kill all the Romans. Jesus came as a suffering servant and said, I'm going to go to heaven and then I'm going to send my spirit to show you the true fruit that you're going to have to produce until I come back to be the mighty warrior. You're not called to be the warrior that's going to set the world right. You're called to be the ones that tell people that there's a warrior coming who's going to set the world right, and they better repent before he comes. That's your job. Revelation 19.11 says this. This is the end of the Bible. This is the end of the story. This is after everything's gone on. We're not here yet. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider called Faithful and True. He's faithful to save, and he says what's true. And he judges and makes war rightly, in righteousness. Not war unrighteously, but righteously. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. That means he had control of every kingdom. He had every kingdom's crown. He was the king. He had a name written to no one except himself. There no one except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, shields red, And his name is the word of God. Eat my flesh, eat the word. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with just a word. God's power is so powerful. It's why his word is so powerful. He's not going to come. The armies don't even get to kill anyone. He's going to do it, and the armies are going to be behind him doing this. That's it. It's like fans at a football game. You're standing with your little Steeler, you know, towel or whatever you got, your Homer hanky, and you're, woo, you're not doing anything, nothing. The players are doing it all, and you're just like, this is awesome. I'm a part of the team. Oh, I'm, just, I'm a fan. Oh, yeah. Like, you've done nothing. We steal that image from the heaven itself. We will sit at football games and cheer on people throwing a ball around. Not thinking about the fact that someday that's going to be our job. It's a stolen picture of what it looks like to say, no, this team, it's fun to come watch. It's fun to cheer them on. They ain't it. They can't win every Super Bowl. But I got a guy that's going to win every time. And I'm going to cheer him on. And it says he just speaks a word and it happens. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He goes on, he says, he will also trample the winepress. There's the vine. 
Remember the vine that's going to produce the fruit? He's going to bring in all the fruit. And he's going to trample the wine press so that we can drink together. Of the fruit he made, not the fruit we made, the fruit he made, the harvest he brought in. And it says, of the fierce anger of God and the Almighty, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, and it is King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no longer another army coming. There's no king we need. It's finished. It's done. And forever, we will now live in a land where there's nobody, there's no war. There's only peace with our king. There is only one Lord. You see, the best form of government in the world is a benevolent monarchy. We will never have that form of government. No king will be good enough until Jesus is that benevolent monarch who has full control and authority, and we know it and we love him, and he's not just our monarch and our king. He calls us sons and daughters. And no longer do we have to overthrow the king. All we have to do, unlike the kings we see who killed their fathers to raise up in their place, all we have to do is cheer on our king. And he says we will reign with him, unified in peace forever. Just not yet. Now we're still in a war. We battle the flesh. And we tell people that there is a king that's coming, just like Nahum did. Nahum finishes his chapter and says, Beware, the Lord says, I am against you. You see, Judah and Nineveh and all these people thought that, well, God's with us. No, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will make your chariots go up in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. That's going to happen one day according to our Bible. I didn't make the story up. God wrote it. You can either believe in him and believe he's the bread, he's the wine, he's the everything, or you can keep looking for someone and something else. But I'm telling you, you will be sorely disappointed because there's coming a day. There's one coming. And I don't know about you, but I am looking more and more forward the older I get. I am looking more and more forward to that day when I meet him. And if it's because he comes and I'm still alive, great. If it's because I die and he takes me home to be with him and then I get to be with him, great. And in the meantime, I'm going to live like, or at least try to live like Nahum. Try to tell the truth to people and warn and encourage them. God is slow to anger. He's good. He's full of jealousy and wrath. And you need him. And remind people that he's given us the Holy Spirit to give us what? Look at this. Look to the mountains. The feet of one bringing good news and proclaim peace. That's our job. We look around at the mountains of Bloomington or hills. We know what's coming and we try to tell people, yep, you should be panicked. Yep, it's bad. Yep, it's not going to go well for all of us. We're all going to die. It's gonna be... But you know what? I got good news. That's not the end of the story. I even got better news. You can have peace in the midst of all of it even now. That's the gospel. That's Nahum. That's Jesus. That's all the prophets. That's the story of our book. So let me ask you this morning, have you invited Jesus to be the one in your life? Fully surrendered and saying, you know what? Nothing's going to fulfill me until you come into my life.
I can't fill my, I'm done filling my life up with stuff. I surrender to you. And if you've done that, he says you can have confidence that he won't ever leave you or forsake you. That he's going to produce the fruit in your life by loving you as a father would love a son. And if you're sitting out there and you say, yeah, I've prayed that prayer. I've invited Jesus to come in. Let me ask you, how's the war and the peace in your heart going and why? Maybe you need some help. Maybe Jesus wants to send someone in this body or another Christian into your life to be the one that reminds you of the one. That gives you fresh perspective on your life again and encourages you to keep going. Don't forget, there's one coming. And if that's you, I would encourage you to find someone. Say, please pray for me. I'm struggling. And if you're someone who knows the one, you're confident, Yeah, there's still a war in your own flesh, but can I just tell you, go tell people. Make him known to the people around you. Look to be the one for someone else, not as in you're the one, but like you're trying to lead them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for Nahum. Lord, I thank you that you sent people who are empowered by your Holy Spirit to give us words that just help us have very clear perspective about our world. Lord, I thank you that you tell us the truth that when everybody else is trying to manipulate us, either with just panic and fear and dread and judgment, or they're trying to manipulate us with this lie that it's all peace, love, and joy with no problems, that you stand directly between and give us the truth because it all points back to you. And so Lord, I pray for anybody here who's struggling this morning. They feel that war and that tension. Lord, if they have never committed their life to you, I pray today would be the day that they say, I'm done. I'm like the people thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago that keep not listening, and I'm done being one of those people. I want to listen. I want to eat. I want to think. I I want to be changed. And I pray that they would invite you to be the penalty for the judgment they deserve so that you can then resurrect them spiritually to bring in the Holy Spirit to make them into the people that they never deserve to be. Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that we would see that this battle of the war and the peace and the flesh and the spirit are longing for you to be the one that comes. I pray that we would take that to heart, that we would not give up or grow weary. And Lord, I pray that we would encourage others around us We wouldn't make ourselves out to be the one with all the answers, but we would point people to your word and that you are the one. Encourage us this morning, Lord. Help us to see that this isn't the end of the story, that you're coming back as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we can trust you. We thank you and praise you in your name.